0: We started uh, Family of God versus Fellowship with God last week, and we got about halfway through, but I I do want to at least take a moment to review sort of the basis, at least for the first five minutes or so here, uh, of what we're talking about. Uh, As I said last week, the, the notion of being in the family of God or a part of the family of God versus being in fellowship with God are two critical elements of the Christian life that we really need to understand. And so many Christians, I find, so many churches, even a lot of pastors, really don't understand the distinction between positional truth and our practical truth. So when we talk about those two things, position and practice, we're talking about things like salvation versus discipleship. Now, we talked a lot about salvation several weeks ago, and when we use the term salvation in this context, we're talking about being delivered from the penalty of sin. So we're talking about eternal salvation. So there's eternal salvation, which is a once-for-all event when you place your faith in Christ. Then there's discipleship, which means to follow Christ. So everyone who is saved should be a disciple. We can also make the same distinction using the terms justification and sanctification. So justification is that one-time moment in time when you place your faith in Christ and you're declared positionally righteous. Sanctification theologically refers to that gradual setting apart in Christ-likeness, that gradual growth process of maturing in the faith and so forth. So whether you call it family of God, fellowship with God, salvation, discipleship, justification, sanctification, we're talking about the same thing. Um, just coming at it from a little bit different angles and a little bit different terminology. But the reason it is important is because if you don't understand your position in Christ, then a lot of passages of Scripture that are talking about our practice are going to really throw you for a loop. And we're going to look at some of those uh, tonight as we continue to use this fellowship uh, versus family uh, dichotomy. So the kind of the foundational verse here that we started with last week is Galatians 3.26. We looked at this a little bit Sunday in our message, uh, uh, the Christmas message that we did Sunday in Galatians. Uh, But uh, Paul said, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So we've used this sort of diagram to illustrate this, that every human being is born outside of the family of God because of sin. When sin entered the world, it separated us from God. In fact, sin by definition means separation, or I mean death by definition means separation. Sin brings death. So, for example, physical death separates the body from the soul. Spiritual death separates us from God. There's, there's six kinds of death in Scripture. And uh, Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. So, separation because of sin. So, here we are, a human being, but because of the curse of sin, we're under the penalty of sin, and we're separated from the family of God. And our sins separate us, but we try everything we can to try to get into that family of God. But the only thing that will open the door to the family of God is faith alone in Christ alone who paid our penalty for sin. When you place your faith alone in Christ alone and His atoning work at Calvary, it opens the door and we then are deposited in the family of God. A number of terms are used for this in Scripture such as adoption, uh, sealing with the Holy Spirit, justified, being declared righteous, reconciled to a holy god regenerated meaning born again um, all kinds of terms Um, in my soteriology classes soteriology just means the study of salvation uh, we often spend one class session going through key soteriological terms or key terms in the Bible that relate to salvation. And again, it's things like reconciliation, repentance, regeneration, redemption, justification, positional sanctification, adoption, uh, and there's 20 or 30 of them. So uh, all when we place our faith in Christ, instantly in that moment, we are born again, as Jesus told Nicodemus, born from above, and we are deposited In the family of God. So again, as Paul said, we become sons of God or children of God because of our faith in Christ Jesus. Nothing else can help you become part of the family. For example, you can call yourself a Christian. Many people do. It doesn't mean you're a Christian. It's no different than if someone stole my identity and uh, said they were a Hickson, you know. Someone just last week, we got a call from our credit card company. Someone tried to use my credit card to spend $1,024 at a Tom Thumb in Dallas. We hadn't been to Texas and who knows when, not to Dallas anyway. And, um, and they said, hey, we want to make sure this is legit. And I said, uh, no, it's not legit. You know, someone was trying to use my identity, if you will, at least on the credit card. Uh, that won't do it. Uh, you can try to be good enough to act like a moral person. So you might externally look like a person who's part of the family of God, but you're not. You're just an imposter. Um, you can try to be baptized and think, well, if I'm baptized, then some, somehow that sacrament, as some people call it, makes me okay in God's eyes. Right Now I'm part of the family of God. Or I'm born into a family. So because of my heritage, I'm part of the family of God. My dad's a Christian. My mom's a Christian. My grandfather's a Christian. My grandmother's a Christian. I must be a Christian, right? No. The, the complete testimony of Scripture deserves only one way that anyone can become part of the family of God. And it's individual, personal, and everyone does it the same way. And that is faith alone in Christ alone, right? And so uh, once you've placed your faith in christ and him alone for salvation you're part of the family of god and that's what leads john to say things like behold what manner of love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of god or john says it this way to as many as received him and what does it mean to receive him the last phrase there believe on his name that's how you receive him to them he gave the right to become the children of god so Uh, becoming part of the family of God is a free gift. You cannot earn it. You can't be good enough to, you know, merit it in any way. Uh, You have to receive it as a free gift. How do you receive that gift? Well, you know, it's Christmas time, so we're all kind of thinking in terms of gifts, right? And you give someone a Christmas gift, they physically take hold of it with their hands. Now it's theirs, right? If you hand someone a gift and they say, no, 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 I don't want it, I mean, you could leave it on their front porch, but if they never get it, it's just going to, you know, get uh, destroyed and the weathered and eventually someone maybe take it. But if they've never taken possession of it, it's not theirs. So a gift must be received for the recipient to take ownership of it. And that's critical because there's only one way to receive the gift, spiritually speaking, of eternal life and forgiveness of sins which results in us being part of the family of God. And the means by which we receive the free gift of eternal life is what? Faith. It's not that complicated, right? We've done a good job of complicating it. Bad theology has taught us that faith is this weird thing. It's got all these different components. But no, faith is just belief in some proposition, right? So people believe many things in life. People might believe in the five pillars of the Islamic faith or the seven sacraments of the Catholic faith, or they might believe in other uh, steps of new age religion or uh, ways that they can achieve nirvana or whatever, but that faith won't save you. It's faith in the right object, and the only object that will save us is faith alone in Christ alone. Yeah? What's nirvana? It's in Buddhism. It's this like highest level of peace or I'm not even sure. So, yeah. So, thank you for asking. Um, So, uh, you you know, faith alone in the right object—not just faith in a vacuum, because people believe a lot of things. It's when faith meets the right object. The result is you become part of the family of God. You're you're born again. So, more than 160 times, the New Testament states or implies in the context that it's faith alone in Christ alone that brings salvation and i've got a list of those in the appendix one of the appendices to getting the gospel wrong out there on the resource table so this is one of those 160 verses how do you get the right to become a child of god you receive him how do you receive him by believing in his name so uh faith is the instrumental cause of eternal life let me say that again faith is the instrumental cause of eternal life um I was having this discussion this week with someone, I won't mention who, no one from our church, but um, who had shown me a doctrinal statement in which it said that the, I'm paraphrasing, but the atoning work of Christ and the key word that it said was achieved salvation. And I pointed out to them that that's not accurate. Christ's atonement does not achieve salvation. Christ's atonement makes salvation achievable. Big difference, right? Right. The only thing that can achieve or procure or give you salvation is faith. Christ's atoning work covered the sins of all mankind and made it possible for anyone and everyone to be saved who wanted to. But only those who receive his payment by faith actually receive that gift. Yeah. Where does that faith come from? From ourselves. It's not a gift. Yeah, that's confusing the gift with the means of receiving the gift. It's to be like if I handed you a present and you said, great, thanks for the present. Can I have a present so I can get the present? Right? You don't need a present to receive the present. You have the volitional ability to receive or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now Calvinism teaches that faith is the gift you don't have a choice in the matter. You couldn't reject the gift if you wanted to, and if you're elect, I mean, if you're not elect, you couldn't receive the gift if you wanted to. They believe faith is not the instrumental cause of eternal life; it is the involuntary response to having been saved. Right? So you get saved because God chose you and forces it upon you. You have no choice. Uh, if you're elect, you get saved. If you're not elect, you couldn't get saved even if you wanted to. Um, and then involuntarily you get, you have faith it's passive but the in the new testament we are called upon 160 in the old testament for that matter but 160 times in the new testament to believe in order to be saved god would not call us to do something that is impossible for us to do so we're not passive agents here we're active agents okay so Uh, There is no passage in the New Testament that suggests or intimates that faith is the gift. Faith is the means of receiving the gift. The gift is forgiveness and eternal life. The problem is sin. That's the predicament. The predicament is sin. The uh, way to overcome that sin is by faith. And the result of having faith is eternal life. So you can't have more than one gift in the equation. There's a giver, a receiver, a gift, and a means of receiving the gift. It's pretty, pretty basic. Um, But the reason that I said, going back to my discussion, that it's incorrect to say that uh, the atoning work of Christ on the cross achieved salvation is because in the Calvinist theology, it is indeed the atonement that saves. And, And that's the reason they believe in limited atonement, that Christ only died for the elect. Christ did not die for the sins of the whole world. He died just for the elect. Why do they say that? Well, because they believe that the atonement is actually what saves people. Well, if the atonement saves people, and you know some people go to hell, the atonement only must be relevant to the elect, they say. So hence they come up with limited atonement. Yeah. Right. So that's what you're saying. Yeah, they come up with several things. The big mantra uh, in Calvinism is dead men can't believe. But dead men can believe because we're all born dead and we're told to believe. God wouldn't tell us to do something we can't do. So again, we are not passive. The Calvinist scheme is God does it all. So here's the Calvinist scheme, and, 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 and I've t- taught on this extensively. We have a couple of books about it out there, and then I've got my DVD series on what is Calvinism and is it biblical. But you're born dead. As a dead person, you have absolutely no ability to think intellectually or what well, your brain is just mush. You can't believe. So you're walking along, all of a sudden, you get zapped and you're regenerated. And it's completely the work of God. And so you're walking along and you go, huh. and then. Now you're saved. You were one second earlier. You were not saved. Now you're saved. And by the way, in a strict Calvinist scheme, and I've talked to many of them about this, and I've spoken at you know, a lot of different you know, conferences, uh, in a strict Calvinist scheme, that many believe that if you were to die one second later, you'd go to heaven. Because again, all that matters is whether you're elect, not whether you've believed. Belief is sort of an ancillary, involuntary thing that most of the time happens after that. So then, after that being zapped, you then say, I think I'll believe the gospel. And you don't do it on your own. God gives it to you. God forces you to do it. They don't like the word force, but if it's not possible for you to do it apart from God, and if you have no choice in the matter, which is their belief, again, if you are elect, you absolutely cannot not believe the gospel. If you are not elect, you absolutely cannot believe the gospel. So, that's what we mean by force. God, you know, you have no choice. So, let's call it what it is, right? If a gift that is forced upon you where you have no choice but to take it, that's not that's not love, that's not a gift. That's compulsion, right? You know, if I If I'm holding a gun to your head and I say take this gift or else, you didn't freely receive the gift and it wasn't freely offered. The nature of a gift is it's freely offered and freely received. Anything else is no longer a gift, it's a contract, it's a quid pro quo. It must be freely received and freely offered. Yeah. The Holy Spirit draws, they believe that means drag, (laughs) Uh, but the Holy Spirit draws you. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Um, So by the way, since all men are not saved, draw cannot mean drag. (laughs) It just means He's drawing all men and indeed it's a universal offer. Uh, The Holy Spirit, John 16 says, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So. You cannot believe in a gift that brings eternal life unless you first understand you need it, right? Why would someone seek forgiveness of sins if they don't know they're a sinner? So Jesus said in John 16, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, convicts the world of sin. So the Holy Spirit's absolutely very active, but He can be resisted. That's the point. He's not, it's, he doesn't force people to obey. In the same way, That Satan did not force Adam and Eve to sin. God does not force Adam and Eve to receive the gift in payment for their sin. Adam and Eve were born with free will. God warned them not to eat of the forbidden fruit. They had a choice, right? They chose to sin. God then says, okay, look, in, in my justice you should spend eternity in hell because I'm a just God and I'm a God of my word and I said you would die if you ate. But in my love and mercy, I'm going to take the next step and I'm going to help a way out of the predicament you got yourself in. So I'm going to send my son to be the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He's going to die for your sins, paying the penalty, rise again, defeating death, hell, and the grave and purchasing life. And then he's going to offer that life to you. I've created a way out. It's up to you. Do you want to receive it or reject it? And again, a gift that you do not have a choice in whether or not to accept, is not a gift, right? It's a compulsion. So back to the discussion that I was alluding to. Uh, For Calvinists, uh, and, and really for everyone, the extent of, I mean, the purpose of the atonement determines its extent. If you believe the purpose of the atonement is to save, then you must believe in limited atonement because not everybody's saved. That's plain from Scripture that at the great white throne there will be many multitudes who are spending eternity in the lake of fire. So if you think the atonement is what saves, of course the atonement is only limited. But if you believe it's faith that saves and the atonement simply makes it possible for you to be saved, then you believe in uh, unlimited atonement. Jesus died for the sins of the world. So look at 1 John uh, chapter 2, for example. And let's, let's see what uh, God's Word says. 1 John, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 2. The Bible says, "...and He," that's Jesus Himself, "...is the propitiation for our sins," the satisfactory payment, the, the payment satisfying God's wrath, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So who did Christ's atoning work pay the penalty for sins for? The whole world. Now Calvinists come to that because their theology dictates their interpretation. They say, oh, it really means the whole world of the elect, not just some of the elect, but all of the elect. Yeah. I
1: am not a Greek scholar, but somebody I know is. Uh-huh. So they say, the
0: word for world is cosmos, mm-hmm. which means everybody. Sure. Well, how, then how do they... Well, so there's not a... Te- that would be... Uh, I would say that argument, though I agree with the conclusion, I think it's a weak argument because that's uh, the fallacy of technical meaning. Cosmos, like every word in any language in Greek, does not have a technical meaning. It has to be determined by context, right? But there's nothing in this context that alludes to election or you know just certain people it clearly he's he's contrasting the sum with the all not just for our sins my audience that I'm writing this letter to but the sins of the whole world right so i mean uh, it is true that cosmos often refers to all of the created beings but it it it's i wouldn't i wouldn't make too much out of that argument from that angle i think the context determines I meaning and the context is clear um, look at another one for example in um, I think it's 2 Peter. Let me just make sure if I can get there. That's in the New Testament, right? (laughs) I'm so used to using my digital Bible that I don't. uh, 2 Peter chapter 2. Okay, hang a right, go to 1 John and hang a left. Okay, all right. So 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, watch this, even denying the Lord who bought them. Okay. What does it mean he bought them? Well, he paid their penalty. He was, he, they were part of the redemptive work of Christ at Calvary. He bought them. Now, who are they? Who is them? Who's the pronoun them referring to? Well, you read all the way through this and he has some all kinds of things to say, but you follow the discussion of these people that Jesus bought and you get down to verse 17 and it says, these people are those for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. What's that referring to? What's what's the blackness of darkness forever? Hell. Hell, Right. So the people whom here's an example of people whom Jesus bought with his own blood who end up in hell now if the atonement saved everybody then how could these people end up in hell it's because the atonement doesn't save everybody the atonement makes it possible to achieve, achieve salvation what saves you faith faith is the instrumental cause of salvation yeah
1: in just a common sense logical way though I can understand perhaps how some Calvinists get to that thinking when we get to the typical thing everybody always says well how is that fair the aborigines you know in the middle Mm -hmm. of the jungle how are they going to hear and then I I hear Christian you know pastors say well if you really are searching for God he'll find a way right Romans Uh, one right exactly but I can understand where they would say it just doesn't make sense. He must choose because he plopped Karen in this situation or JB in this situation and how is it fair that those people that are over in Saudi Arabia that you know what I'm saying So two I things don't think how logically they could come to that to that decision.
0: Yeah, so let me address two things in, in in your comment and question. First of all, God does choose. I'm not denying that God chooses. The Bible teaches that. I'm just denying that that means some people don't have a choice whether to believe or not. See, the Bible teaches sovereignty and free will. Not sovereignty or free will. The Bible teaches both. It's what's called a biblical antinomy. Anti meaning against, namas from the Greek word law meaning against logical law. It seems contrary to logic that God would elect and yet you have a free choice. Doesn't that seem... But the Bible teaches both. And this goes back to what we talked about I think it was last week or maybe it was Sunday, about the amazing distinction between God outside of time, space, and matter in eternity and us within time, space, and matter where we think linearly. You can't reconcile the two. So that's why we have God's Word. So we trust God's Word the same way we do with many other antinomies like the virgin birth. That is not logical. We accept it we're about to celebrate it. Uh, It's not possible for Jesus to be 100% God and yet 100% man. How does that work, right? How can He be God and yet not know the day or the hour? How can He be God and yet hunger and thirst? How can He be God and yet weep? Because He's both. He's not like He's playing a role. He puts on His humanity here, and He puts on His deity here, and He goes, no, He's both. The hypostatic union doctrine teaches that he is 100% God and 100% man, which any mathematician knows is not possible. You can be 50-50 or 70-30, but you can't be 100-100. There are many antinomies, things that are contrary to logic, but the basis for our beliefs is what does the Bible say. So I don't reject sovereignty. I just reject Calvinism's view that sovereignty reigns supreme and you don't have a choice in the matter. Right. And it is. And so that's the first point. But the second point is we don't ever want to go down the road logically and mentally in coming at God from the fairness perspective. Right. Because the only thing that is fair is for every human being who go back to our uh, chart here, who is stuck outside because of sin to spend eternity in hell. That's fair. That's justice. God, in His incredible love, made a way out. But He doesn't force that way out on everyone. Otherwise, everybody would be saved, right? So, um, wherefore, by one man sinned into the world, that's Adam. Romans 5 goes on to contrast the first Adam with the second Adam, Christ, right? And just in the same way that the first Adam's sin affected the whole world, right? It would be in consistent and make the, the, the analogy that Paul is making in Romans 5 make no sense if the second Adam, Christ's death, only affected part of the world. It is unlimited. Anyone in the world by virtue of the death of Christ can come to Christ by faith and receive the gift of eternal life. I don't know how that works, but I'm not God, so I don't have to. So, you know, there's no, a mentor of mine that's with the Lord now, Bob Leitner, used to say, there is not a single passage in the Bible that distinguishes between the elect and the non-elect in their unregenerate state. Every reference to the elect is after they've been saved. Right? So we, what that means is, we, at the end of the time, when time shall be no more you know think revelation 21 and 22 old heavens and old earth destroyed new heavens and new earth is in place no night no water just an eternity without time no elections <laughs> thank God no cheating either right amen. amen so when that time comes and that's even a misnomer but you know what i mean only the elect will be in heaven but we don't no one is born with an e on their head right We don't know. So from a human perspective, any one of the 7.5 billion people can be saved. Well, How do we know that? Because the Bible says, whosoever will, let him come. And that's a bona fide offer. Jesus said, "If, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Not some, but all. And then some of them will believe the gospel and be born again into the family of God. Some of them will reject the gospel. He's not going to force, He's not going to drag you kicking and screaming into the family of God. If you are intent to, to stay in your sin and not receive the payment for that sin, okay, then you have nobody to blame. At the great white throne, nobody can shake their fist at God and say, you know, this isn't fair. God says, look, you know, I and He explains this in Romans that, that there's no one has an excuse. That the very revelation of God, the the nature and so forth, the conscience, every, there are all kinds of general representations that there's a God. And if you respond to that general revelation, He will send you special revelation, namely the gospel. So faith only comes by hearing the gospel and responding to it. So uh, everybody has that option. Now, of course, Calvinists don't believe that, but it's not it's it's not um, loving. I mean, it's another analogy they try to make is, you know, it's, it's more loving to think of only the elect having the opportunity to be saved. And they go, well, wouldn't it just imagine if you're all, you know, sitting out on a hillside and a bus pulls up and God gets out and says, I'll take you and you and you and you and he selects a few And you get on the bus, wouldn't you just feel so special because God chose you? And I'm going, well, maybe, but if that bus has on the side of it, anyone is welcome. And then God does that. And I'm one of the ones left sitting on the side. I'm not going to feel loved at all. I'm going to feel that this is an incredible injustice. And the Bible says, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. So it's a bona fide offer within the realm of time, space, and matter. Uh, The Bible ends with, Whosoever will, let him take and drink of the water of life freely. Whosoever means whosoever. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved who? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. Not the world of the elect, the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but has everlasting life. So to be clear the issue isn't with election that's a theological fact and doctrine that the bible teaches it does not really have any bearing on how we do evangelism or or who can be saved or not saved it's just a theological fact and it speaks to the sovereignty of god his you know psalm 116 our god is in heaven he does whatever he pleases but that's that, that's not the problem with calvinism the problem with calvinism is then they then because of that They say, well, because God chooses, you don't have a choice. You cannot, I mean, don't miss this. You, they say, cannot believe the gospel. It is impossible. Dead men can't believe. And I'm here to tell you, the Bible says dead men can believe. Dead men can do the one thing and only thing that the Bible says you must do to have eternal life. Because God would not give you a a means of receiving eternal life that it was impossible for you to do. So it's a bona fide offer, and I and I, you know, we don't have time to get into it here, and I don't have the slides uh, at my fingertips. But in other uh, videos and books, I've I've outlined plenty of examples of Scripture where people can, uh, because of their free will, ch- reject or believe uh, the gospel. So, um, so yeah, I mean, when we say that um, the atoning work of Christ achieved or procured or obtained salvation I know what we mean by that but that's not accurate words mean things and as we've talked about previously in this series the word save as it relates to sin and and our savior means to be rescued from the penalty of sin and there's only one way to achieve that or obtain that or take possession of that or procure that and that again is what faith faith so the atonement does not save people it makes it possible for people to be saved right i mean we could use a thousand analogies a life preserver on a cruise ship or a life boat does not save you it makes it possible for you to be saved you know i mean just think about how ridiculous it would be you know the boat uh, the titanic is sinking if, in fact, it really sank. I read a book. I don't know if you've heard this story or heard this view, but I read a book that the Titanic is a big fake, too. But anyway, it was just to get insurance money, but that's another story. Morgan was but to be on J.P. Morgan, there. yep, yep. But anyway, let's assume the official narrative is correct. You're on the Titanic. Everybody says, oh, the boat's sinking. Head for the life rafts, right? And you're like, nope, I'm just going to stay here. The life raft will save me. And they're, they're going... Uh, yeah, but only if you get in it, right? No, no, the life raft will save me because the the life raft achieves and provides salvation. No. It's no. No more than if I write you a check, if you don't cash it, it's not yours, right? So Christ wrote the check. He paid the penalty. He provided the opportunity for anyone to be saved. But you have to believe it. You have to believe it. And you can believe it or you can reject it. And if you reject it and you die, you'll... Uh, you'll spend eternity in heaven. Look at John, I mean in hell. Look in John uh, chapter 3. Uh, in John 3 and verse uh, 17. Right after the verse we just quoted. John three seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now watch this. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Why does anybody go to hell? Unbelief. This is what my new book that Ann helped uh, me publish, that published for me, is is all about. Top ten reasons some people end up in hell. It all stems from unbelief. There are a lot of reasons people might not believe the gospel, and that's what the book gets into, is why in the world would someone not receive the free gift of eternal life? What would keep them from believing? But the ultimate thing is unbelief. Uh, so, uh, And Jesus, in that same context, has just said, but if you know whoever believes in me has everlasting life. Go back and look at verse 14 and 15, as long as we're in the neighborhood. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, these are some of the 160 verses. It's, it, it's pretty clear, and you have to do theological gymnastics to twist the verses from their plain normal sense. Nobody in the original audience reading John's letter, for example, would say that when they read that, that Christ is only paying the penalty for the sins of the elect. They would say, "No, he's the propitiation for the whole world." John just said that; it's pretty clear. But you know, Calvinism, which by the way is only 400 years old, comes along and and they they, they broke away from the, the the Roman Catholic doctrine and said, "Yeah, it is faith," but they just couldn't completely cut free from it. They had to include some elements of of works in there in the sense that. They believe that if you're not doing good works, you never were saved. Because again, that's the whole system is a lockstep system that God does it all. God saves you through the death of Christ. He drags you, kicking and screaming if, pos- if necessary, into faith. He gives you the faith you couldn't believe whether you wanted to or not. He makes you do it. And then He forces you then to obey if you're, not, if you're sinning. Well, then God wouldn't do that, so you must not really be saved. That's the doctrine of perseverance. All believers, they say, will persevere in good works. If you're not doing good works, you're not a believer. So Calvinism would never say you lose your salvation. They just say, well, you never really had it, obviously, because look at your life, right? But what we're showing you in this series is that a Christian who chooses to cater to the flesh instead of the spirit is very capable of sinning you know, and sinning for extended period of time. We, we've done illustration in here a few weeks ago that how many of you are struggling today with some of the same sins you were struggling with the day you got saved? Probably every one of us. Does that mean we're not saved? You know, so uh, so there's some, a real problem here. But bottom line that, that I really wanted to, 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 to talk about in light of the discussion I had this week is that Words mean things. We want to be accurate in how we describe it. So what we need to say is the atoning work of Christ paid the penalty for sin so that anyone and everyone who chooses to receive that free gift can avail themselves of that payment, but it does not save anybody. The purpose of the atonement determines its extent. If the purpose was to save, you must believe in limited atonement like Calvinism. But if the purpose was to make it possible for you to be saved, then you believe in unlimited atonement, which is that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Okay. Any questions or comments about that? And yeah. yet John Piper will be in heaven along with the rest of it. Yeah, so that's a great point. Um, you know, uh, there are a lot of people today that are teaching uh, false doctrine when it comes to the gospel because they believe that faith, again, is not something you can do. Uh, so God gives it to you and even at that your faith has to include the element of commitment, surrender, pledge, promise, obedience, forsaking, following, all of these terms that they use. What did you say? Covenant. Yeah, it's this, you know, this, 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 this bilateral covenant. Um, but even though they're teaching incorrectly, we're not at all suggesting that they're not going to heaven because my assumption is at some point along the way as much as these men study the word of God they've heard and understood the pure and simple gospel which is in 10 words or less Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead and anyone who believes that is saved regardless of how much you pledge or promise to God you don't bring something to the table like you know Piper said Piper's here's a direct quote from Piper there can be no doubt that what God will require at the final judgment for entrance into heaven is some measure of real lived out obedience to the will of God. Now, how does that not work salvation? I mean, I don't know how. There's no wiggle room there, right? That's just no wiggle room. But his theology leads him there. Because again, God saves you, God drags you to faith, God gives you the faith. You then are born again passively through nothing that you've chosen to do. And as a born again child of God, you will guaranteed produce good works. So in his mind, there can be no doubt that that's what God's going to do because God did it. And that means that a lot of passages like the ones we're going to look at here in a second um, have to be reinterpreted and twisted, right? So what do you do with the guy in 1 Corinthians 3 at the judgment seat of Christ where Paul says, everything in his life was burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. In other words, there was not one single rewardable action in his life. Have you ever stopped to think about what that guy looked like in his Christian life?
1: What do you do with the
0: thief on the cross? Or the thief on the, cross? Thief on the cross. And many people die. John the Baptist is in heaven today, but he died in a lonely prison cell questioning whether Jesus is really God. <laughs> right? So a lot of people die in unbelief. It doesn't mean they're in hell because you know, we, the Christian life, as we're talking about, is about yielding to the Holy Spirit, walking by faith and not by sight, living out your faith. And this is a, a sin-stricken, messed up, fallen world where Satan is prince. And sadly, sometimes the inequities of life cause people to get distracted and shipwrecked and they shake their fist at God and they do what we read a lot about in the Psalms like David did. The difference is we happen to know the rest of the story in David's life. But what about Peter or what or, use David or Peter? What if in that moment of bitterness and anger and rebellion against almighty God, their savior, they dropped dead of a heart attack? Does that mean they're in hell? No. So we see these snapshots and just because someone for a season seems to be rebelling against God does not mean that they're not saved. doesn't mean they are saved just because they say they are, right? I believe there are a lot of people who think they're saved and aren't, but it has nothing to do with their behavior. If someone is not saved, it's because they've never placed their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And Where
1: did you find that John Yeah.
0: No, remember he said, uh, "You know, is this really the one, or should we look for another?" He was doubting whether Jesus was the Son of God. That was that was earlier. No, that was on on his death in his in jail. But when he John the Baptist. I'm talking about John the Baptist. Did I say John the Baptist? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. No, John the Baptist. Yeah. So, no, the Apostle John, we, we assume, yeah. I mean, he was a martyr. He, he, he was faithful to Christ until the end. Yeah. But John the Baptist, who also is in heaven today. Anybody think John the Baptist is in hell? Oh, no. Of course not, right. I mean, the forerunner of Christ, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. I'm pretty sure he was saved. He's um, but, what's that? He's in. <laughs> he's in, yeah. So, um, but, uh, so, that was just an example. So, lot, Peter, you know. If, if a Calvinist today was sitting outside having lunch at a restaurant, which is, of course, these days where everybody has to sit to have lunch at a restaurant. And, and he looks across the street and he sees a guy who, who curses Christ, denies knowing Him three times, is adamant about it, and curses Him. They would say, there's no way that person can be a part of the family of God, no way they can be a child of God. Look what they did. Peter did that. Now, Calvinist would say, yeah, but we see the rest of his life. And it's okay to sin a little bit or for a season, but you just can't sin a lot. James Montgomery Boyce, famous Calvinist, he said, quote, Believers may fall, they just cannot fall the whole way. Well, if falling the whole way puts me in hell, please show me what that means. Because I want to make sure I don't do it. Just like if, John, if Piper is right and some measure of lived out obedience is necessary, show me the measure. I'd like to know. If these are all requirements for getting into heaven, standards that must be met or standards that cannot be rejected, you know, problems that you cannot do, like falling the whole way, it's incumbent to know. Otherwise, we're all just kind of flying blind, aren't we? So, you, so they, that because they know both scripturally and intuitively that Christians sin, They're forced to come up with arbitrary words like we're going to see in in time. We won't get there tonight, but in 1 John, they insert words like, you know, consistently sin or habitually sin. Or like we looked at in James 2 a few weeks ago, remember, they insert the word, can such faith or can that kind of faith save you, right? They insert those words because they think he's talking about eternal salvation, and they know that you, you don't have to work to be saved, so they must be saying, well, if you don't have works, that you must not you know, be saved, and that means you didn't have the right kind of faith. But uh, to, to illustrate it, let's go ahead and just take a sneak peek at 1 John chapter uh, 3. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to go ahead and put up... Uh, That chart, just so we're not camped out on a poor guy outside the family of God while we're having this side discussion here. I just looked up and thought, well, that someone's watching this video. They're thinking, man, put the guy in the family of God, would you please? First uh, John chapter three. Uh, let's see if I can find a good example. There's several places in here where it does it. All right, verse six. Here's a good one. Uh, 1 John three 3.6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Now, does anybody have, that's what the text says in Greek. And it's very basic, like first person, present, active, indicative type Greek. This isn't even a complex grammatical structure. Does anybody have something other than the New King James? What do you have? In the ESV. And what does it say? It says,
1: no one who abides in him
0: keeps on sinning. That is not what the text says. It is present, active, indicative. It's sins. They're inserting words. Because again, they their view is that based on the five points of Calvinism. And by the way, the ESV is the Calvinist Bible. It's often called the elect standard version, the ESV. <laughs> and the, the committee that translated it and did the ESV notes is, is heavily reformed. And it was basically produced in order to provide a Bible whose in notes in particular and some transi- 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 translational choices like that one kind of lend themselves to the reformed view. But because in the Calvinist scheme, If you do a lot of sinning, it proves you were never saved, right? So they have to say, well, you can sin, you just can't keep on sinning, okay? So if that's the standard for eternal life, which is not what this verse is talking about, but they think it is, how do you know if you measure up? Do you know, I mean, do you, anybody keep on sinning? What does that mean? Someone else have another translation. No, no,
1: no, No one who abides in him sins. Oh, no one who sins has seen him
0: or okay, him. so NASB often is identical to the New King James. It's a more literal translation word for word. So that's good. Anybody have NIV? Or... Uh, yeah. uh, no
2: one who lives in him keeps on
0: sinning. So it says keeps on sinning. Um, I don't want to get off of the screen here into my digital Bible because it'll mess up the recording. But... There's a translation that says continues to sin, which is the same idea as keeps on. But all of those translations are incorrect. That's not what the original Greek text says. It says sins, right? Now, we'll come back to what that means in context, because this is a key passage and we're going to talk a lot about 1 John chapter 3. But uh, this is what you have to do, just like you say, you know, he paid the sins for the world of the elect, Jesus, God's the Lord that he gave his only begotten Son. Uh, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but you know have eternal life. Uh, God so loved the world of the elect is what I was getting at. So you have to do that when your theology tells you that you cannot believe the gospel. You cannot do the one thing the Bible tells you 160 times you have to do to be saved. Um, it's something that God does on your behalf. You are completely passive. So uh, anyway, that's uh, any other questions or comments about about that? or about just the whole, the whole notion of uh, I want, what I really want you to take away from this is that the atoning work of Christ satisfied the wrath of God, paid the penalty, but it, it, that gift is not appropriated to our account. Think justification. That biblical word justification means to reckon to one's account. You've got to receive it before it's put on your account. So the atonement doesn't save. It makes it possible to be saved. What saves you is faith. Yeah. Uh, Does the Darby or
2: Young's Literal or ASB and Geneva do any of those, are any of those like
0: Calvinist uh, motive? Darby certainly wasn't. Uh, I haven't read the Darby translation on this in a while. Again, if I had my uh, software, handy, I could look it up, but uh, I'll look it up after we finish and, and let you know. Uh, the AS, the American Standard Version, that was just the precursor to the NASB, which came out in the 70s, so I'm pretty sure it's going to be consistent. The NASB a good translation. It's consistently formal equivalent. Um, not always. It, it inserts the word there in James 2, but that's a special case. Um, uh, and the others, Geneva and all that, I don't know, but the fact is the text just says, no one who abides in him sins. Now, you should know this from last week. What did we say abide means? Let me pull that up. We, we looked at it um, as one of the dichotomies uh, from John 15. Uh, here it is. So we said, you know, you're in fellowship with God. That is, you're abiding in him. But when you're sinning, you're not abiding in him. Remember what we said abide means? Anybody? Yeah, so the grafting it, is a little different. That's an, an analogy that comes from Romans 9 and uh, the olive tree illustration. Abiding is the Greek word meno and it just means to remain close to. Often translated remain in close fellowship with. Okay. So in John 15, Jesus is in the upper room with the eleven. Judas had already left to go betray Christ. And he's telling these disciples in that intimate moment, hey, remain close to me. Abide in me and you can do great things. Without me, you can do nothing. Just the way a, you know, a branch cannot produce fruit if it's not connected to the tree, you can't do much if you're not staying close to me. But it's, he's talking to believers there. The same John who was sitting there at the table listening to Jesus give this speech 60 years later under the inspiration of the spirit writes first john and he says you cannot be abiding in christ and sinning at the same time because you can't no one who's close to christ is going to sin when you sin what is what are we illustrating here on the chart when you sin you're outside of the fellowship you're out you're you're still in the family of god but it's grieving the spirit right so you can't sin and be abiding in christ at the same time that's what 1 John 3 6 is saying. It's not saying no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I mean, I don't want to I can't resist the urge here to get to to get back into 1 John 3, and we will spend much more time in it. But go back to 1 John 3 and and, and look up uh, for example, at verse 3. Um, Everyone who has this hope in him, Christ, purifies himself just as he is a little bit pure. Is that what it says? What does it say? He's pure. He's pure, right? Okay. Um, but look at verse 5. And we know that he, Jesus, was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is only a little bit of sin. What does it say? No sin. No sin. Right. John's whole point here is that you cannot have any sin and be claiming to be close fellowship with the one who had no sin. Not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. He's talking about your relation. Remember what we said the whole book of 1 John is about, fellowship. That's what it starts out, right? I write these things to you, 1 John 1.4, I write these things to you so that you'll know whether you're going to heaven or not. Is that what he says? No, I write these things to you that your joy may be full. He wants us to be in joyful fellowship with him, like we show on the screen there. And you just can't be sinning and be in joyful fellowship with the Savior who does not sin. Right? In him there's no sin. So no one can claim, like say Peter, as he's denying Christ and cursing Christ, I'm abiding in close fellowship with Christ. Of course not. Now, he's a believer. He's part of the family of God. And just like any child in a physical family might sometimes misbehave and act in ways that don't bring honor to the family name, Christians, too, can walk after the lust of the flesh and sin. And in so doing, they're not bringing glory and honor to the name of Christ. But it doesn't mean you're not part of the family. And that's John's point there in 1 John 3, that uh, you cannot be abiding in Christ and sinning at the same time. Now, if you're looking ahead... I know some of you are good students and you're already sort of reading ahead the rest of the context. There There are several other passages that are worth looking at. For example, he says, um, uh, no one who sins, and again, they insert, a lot of translations insert a word there, no one who keeps on sinning or habitually sins. What does it say? Yeah, practices. No one who practices sin. That's not what it says. It just says no one who sins has either known God or seen God. Okay. Well, let's, let's look at that. I'm going to actually pull that one up. It was down the way a little bit here, but let's, uh, let's look at it. Um, what does that mean? Boy, it sure sounds like if you don't know God, you must be going to hell, right? Well, this is where understanding that positional versus practice dichotomy is so critical. Positionally, we know God if by faith we've trusted Christ and therefore we're part of the family of God. But experientially, we may not know God. What did Jesus say to uh, Philip? In fact, I've got that verse right here. Jesus says to Philip, have I been with you all this long and you don't know me? Was he accusing Philip of being unsaved? Was Jesus saying to Philip, I've been with with you all this time and you're still unsaved and going to hell. No, he was talking about an experiential knowledge, right? Um, it's like, you know, if Karen were to say to me, um, man, I, I got this great new casserole I made. I know uh, you and Wendy will love it. It's loaded with onions. And I were to say to Karen, well, actually I don't think Wendy's gonna like it very much. Uh, she doesn't like onions. And Karen would go, oh, no, I, I know Wendy. She's going to love it. I, I'm sure she'll love it. And I'll go, well, you may know Wendy, but you don't know Wendy the way I know Wendy. My knowledge of Wendy's a little more intimate. I've been married to her for 28 years. I can tell you she's not going to like a casserole loaded with onions, right? So you can know God positionally, but you can also know God intimately and experientially. And this is the way the word is used here. And it's also the way the word is used in 1 John 3, 6. You can't be sinning and claiming to know God, not positionally. And I know that's, that's, that's really hard because we in English, in Christian speak, we use the word know almost exclusively as positional truth. So we'll say, how long have you known the Lord? Tell me how you came to know the Lord. Would you like to come to know the Lord? And all of those are positional context, right? We want you to get saved. But the Bible uses it both positionally and experientially. You can know God positionally, but not know Him experientially, as Philip, the illustration with Philip uh, shows. Same thing with seeing God. I don't know if I have that one on here uh, or not, but he uses the same idea with, you know, you haven't seen God. Or known God Uh, but the idea there is again you can see God positionally and be born again but you're not if you're not walking in in abiding in Christ and in fellowship with Christ it's like you've never seen him right it's like if I were to let's pick on somebody else Um, let's say Gary if I were to say uh, have you seen Wendy and you go, yeah, she's about this tall, bl- brown hair, beautiful, you know. And I would say, amen, yes, that's true. Uh, and I'm like, no, no, no. I, I mean, I know you've seen her, right, we, you know, but have you seen her lately, right? That's, that's the idea. So you can use the word see both in an absolute sense and in a practical experiential sense. And that's all John is saying, that essentially when a child of God, a part of the family of God, sins, not a lot or a little or this much, or that, it just sins, period. All sin is offensive to God. When you sin, you have ne- it's like you've never seen God or known God. Okay. Not saying you're going to hell. Yeah?
1: So, I'm getting a little confused. It sounds like you're saying that being in fellowship with God is a fleeting thing. It comes a
0: goes. It can if you sin, sure. That's right. Well, it's not. I mean, "boom" almost makes it sound like it's involuntary or all of a sudden. Wow, you didn't see that. You're in full control. Well, if you don't realize you're walking in sin, well, if you don't know you're sinning, then you're not out of fellowship. But the Spirit convicts you of that. Well, again. To, to him who knows to do right and doesn't do it is sin. It's sin. It's sin that You have to be aware of it. Yeah. You can be blinded, I suppose, and have a seared conscience, something like that, but you're already out of fellowship, prolonged state out of, out of fellowship. Backslidden, the Bible calls that. But if you're, every time you sin, and we know it, we sin every day. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 3. We were going to look at this one, but this, is, this goes right to your point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Um, here it is um, Paul uses this dichotomy of carnal and spiritual so let's look at read it in verse 1 I've got it on the screen as well and I brethren could not speak to you Corinthian believers as to spiritual people but as to carnal the word carnal there is an adjective meaning worldly right or base it's the same word that's used in Romans 7 when Paul says, I, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I don't, I don't like the things that I do. I'm rebelling against God. Remember Romans 7, the things I know I shouldn't do, I do. Things I know I should do, I neglect. So that's the word here, carnal. He says, I have to speak to you as carnal, as babes in Christ. So they're in Christ, they're in the family of God, but they're, they're living in carnality. He says, I fed you with milk And not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. In English, it looks like the same word; it's a slightly different word in Greek that means just of the flesh, like of the physical body. If you were to translate it literally, be pertaining to the physical realm. So, one of them, the first word, carnal, has more to do with morality. The second one is just the temporal. Realm. It's the same word, the second word there, where he says you are still carnal, right towards the bottom here. That word is the same word that's used in Second Corinthians ten four when Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they're not of this world, but they are mighty in God through the pulling down of strongholds. Right. So they're they're related. So when we are worldly, it's because we are thinking from a mindset of this world we're not thinking spiritually we're thinking on the flesh uh and then he describes in their particular problem it's because they were strife and envy and so forth so they are carnal not behaving uh and they were behaving like mere men so when you're carnal sinning if you are jealous or hateful or or rude or you you know you're whatever lust you know whatever it might be uh you can't be doing that and claim to be in fellowship with the Lord because there's no sin in Christ. But if you're spiritual, that is you're walking in the spirit, not after the flesh. Remember what we said in Galatians 5, Paul said the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and the two are contrary to one another. But then he goes on to say, since we are alive in the spirit, we should walk in the spirit. Same same idea here. Fleshly versus spiritual. When we're ha, have the mind of Christ and we're in the Word of God and we're living out a godly life, we're in fellowship with the Lord. When we don't, we're not.
1: Yeah. And, and we we know the difference because of the, what, the
0: Holy Spirit. Well, yes, and the Word of God. Mm-hmm. So the Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Word of God to to show us the will of God, right? Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? So, thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee, Psalm 119. So, the more we know the word of God, the more we'll trust the word of God. The more we trust the word of God, the more we'll obey the word of God. So, it really does come down to storing up and treasuring up God's word. Um, But, I mean, yeah, it's very simple. It's a very simple paradigm and it's a very biblical paradigm you you walk in the spirit you're going to be in close fellowship with Christ there's going to be an intimacy there that let's put it in real terms that when the tanks start rolling down the street and we usher in a new world order we're going to be like man Jesus is my savior I'm close to him he's I just have such an intimate closeness to him but if we've spent the last 10 years of our life walking in the flesh and worried about all the fleshly things and the worldly things and and money and stresses and anxieties and we haven't had that deep intimate relationship with Jesus, we're going to really panic, right? So the whole testimony of the New Testament is that the sanctification process is about walking by faith, not by sight. Walking in the spirit, not after the flesh. Staying in a close fellowship with Christ. Abiding in Christ. And he's trying to get the... Uh, recipients of his first epistle here to see that you just cannot walk around in sin and claim to be all that when it comes to the Christian life. It doesn't work that way. In fact, he goes on to say verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin. That doesn't say doesn't sin a lot or doesn't habitually sin. What does verse 9 say in one of these other translations? Well, mine says, no one
1: who
0: Sin. Same thing, practices. And what does ESV say?
1: Makes a practice of sin. Okay.
0: So that's not what the Bible says. The Greek just says sins. Because the born of God part of us, what does it mean to be born of God? I hate to keep going off camera. I wish I had a pointer, but they don't work on these screens anyway. But um, born again, think John 3, uh, you must be born from above, re- regenerated. Um, born again puts you in the family of God it's, and you get the new nature, the indwelling spirit. The born of God part of us never sins. Never. It's the old man, not the new man. Remember that dichotomy we looked at last week, new man, old man? Um, so you know, no one can sin and say, well, there's that new nature again manifesting itself, making me sin. There he goes again, that, that newborn part of me sinning. No. No one who's born of God sins at all. It's the old man who sins, right? In fact, the born of God part of us cannot sin because how much sin is there in Jesus? Zero. So, again, people read this and absent any context, absent understanding the meaning of the word "meno" abide, not understanding positional versus practical truth, they say, oh, well, I sin, and I know I'm a Christian, so this must be saying whoever's been born of God really only sins a little bit, right? But that completely destroys the argument the author's making because he doesn't say there's no only a little bit of sin in Jesus. There's no sin in Jesus, right? So I know this is a little bit um, you know, deep maybe or, or it's just some, some heavy food for thought, um, but we need to we need to work through this because it will revolutionize the way you live your life if you live your life confident and secure and assured of who you are in Christ when you sin it'll, it'll definitely convict you know you'll feel conviction and you'll feel grief and you'll want to make it right with the Lord but you won't sit there wondering and doubting well did I go too far did I fall the whole way did I produce enough of a measure to, to satisfy God of good works uh, did I habitually sin too much you know no one, who sins, no one who practices sins is born of God. Well, I mean, what does that mean even? How do you, how do you measure that? How do you quantify that? I can quantify sin, no sin. The Bible gives us a standard. We know what sin is. We know what not sinning is. So it's pretty easy for me to understand that I can't be sinning and be in fellowship with the Lord. But the minute you quantify it with habitually or uh, practices or... Um, Makes a practice, I think, is what you said. The ESV said, "Okay, well, how do I know when I've made a practice of it?" I mean, let's be honest. We like to sin, okay? If we didn't like to do it, we wouldn't do it so much, right? If sin was painful, how many of us would do it, right? Well, the fact is, it is painful. The pleasure of sin is for a season, and then it comes back and 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 bites pretty hard. So, you know, we need. To, we, what does it mean to make a practice of it? How do if that's the standard? If you make a practice of sin, you're not going to heaven. Okay, how do I define that? Pretty important stuff, right? But if it's if it's not talking about heaven or hell, if it's not talking about positional truth but practical Christian living, well now I understand. He's talking about when you sin, guess what? You're out here in misery. The way of transgressors is hard. It's not a fun place to be. You're out of fellowship. When I yield back to the Holy Spirit, confess my sin, make it right with the Lord, and I'm walking in fellowship with God, guess what? I'm joyful and, and my joy can be full, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 1. Yeah.
2: chapters of the book because I want to read five other interlibrary loans and then <laughs> and then I I open it up and I'm feeling guilty and so so I would put the book up and then go and get the Bible and read that. And that would be in fellowship with God. But if I continue to read the book and fight against the convictions say they finish it and
0: then they put it up and then they go to bed that would be not staying in fellowship with God Yeah by and large that's an excellent you know description but I think you sort of touched on without saying it some things that also need some clarification such as legalism so it's really an attitude of the heart so another scenario let's say your same scenario you felt like you were supposed to read the bible that day. You ignored that prompting of the Holy Spirit. You went out and did other stuff. And later as you're laying in bed you're thinking, man, I should have read the Bible today. You could also simply say, Lord, you know what? I blew it. I really I know you put on my heart that I was supposed to read a passage of Scripture today and I didn't. I confess that to you. Tomorrow, I'm going to try better. And it's a matter of the heart. And in that, in that transparent openness before God. Remember, confess means to say the same thing as Homo legeo, homo same legeo to speak. You're saying the same thing with God. You're saying, God, yeah, I knew I uh, should have done it and didn't. In that moment, your fellowship is restored. Whether you ever got out and read it, you might say, I'm going to go on to sleep and I'll do it tomorrow, Lord. But if, but legalism would say, I've got to do this, this, this. I've got this checklist and I've got to do every single thing on it. And if I miss one thing, you know, if I give 1% less than I said I was or if I do this or that then i'm somehow i 'm sinning, and i've got that's legalism, but remember, sin is not about external, it's in the heart that's why Jesus said, You may not have committed murder, but if you 've hated, you sinned, you may not have committed adultery, but if you've lusted, you sinned. so I would just I would finesse it a little bit and, and nuance it a little bit and say it's about the heart. God looks at the heart so you know, you know if, the, if the Spirit of God really burdens your heart in that moment and laying in bed and you really feel burdened to the Spirit that you need to get up and read, well, get up and read the Bible. But don't get up and read it because you felt like somehow you've failed God because you said you would and didn't. I think God's going to be okay with a pure heart, honestly and openly before God, saying, Lord, I sinned. And I should have done it because I felt like you told me to and I didn't do it. And you know what? I confess that. And tomorrow I'm going to do better. That that's that can also restore that fellowship. So we don't want to make it transactional where it's all a list of do's and don'ts. We want to remember the attitude of the heart. Yeah.
1: Kind of like Martha and Mary. I mean, you can be doing a
0: great thing for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm.
1: And there's seasons like maybe the right thing to do that evening would be to get out and help his mother with the dishes. Right. Rather than read his Bible even though he missed it. So there's,
0: there's yeah. seasons. Absolutely, very well said. And for the record, if it ever comes down to a choice of helping your mother or reading the Bible, (laughs) help your mother. Help your mother. Yeah, there you go. There you go. All right, we are way over time. Thanks for indulging the discussion, and we will uh, pick up with this again uh, next week.